those symbols you just saw are our five core values, starting with hungry hearts, hearts hungry for God, which lead then to attentive eyes. We notice people, see people like Jesus does. The next logical step we talked about last week is then linking arms with one another, linked arms, where we come alongside people in tangible ways, never underestimating the potential of our influence. And today we come to the to the following step, obviously, and that is then to live not like this, not clutching, clutching, like we're going to punch somebody out, but but living open-handedly, like that. Just, just, just open your hands for a minute and look at them. What a wonderful picture of the way our lives could look. Just like that. Just like that. It means I'm open, Lord, to, to your presence, and, and, and I'm open to your way in my life. Um, like like uh, Thomas Keating says in his famous welcoming prayer, Lord, I give up the desire to, for power and control and for, for esteem and approval and, and for even survival and security. Because when we're just clutching those things for ourselves, it just, when we're just trying to control everything and make every around, everyone around us be just like we want them to be. I mean, that's the prescription for living with a lot of stress and a lot of frustration and a lot of depression. But just, just to live freely, just to live like I don't need to be in control of everything but I do have open hands to all that God wants to put into my hands. This is a powerful way to live. And it also means I don't clutch what I have, what I own. Um, mainly the two great currencies in our lives are time and money. And I, I don't just clutch them for me. In some ways, the fist represents selfishness and the, the hand open represents selflessness that helps me... Um, make an impact on people around me and to honor the Lord. So I just think open hands is a powerful metaphor. And we've been looking, as we look at each one of these core values, at a king in ancient Jerusalem uh, recorded for us in Second Chronicles in the Old Testament of the Bible. We've been looking at a king that kind of brings us to each one of or illustrates each one of this, these. And we come to King Joash. You might remember his name from last week, although mainly last week we talked about Joash's mentor when we talked about linking arms, how he came alongside young King Joash. And Joash did well as long as his mentor was in his life. But, but there is something that happened during that good season in Joash's life that powerfully illustrates open hands. And we, So let's go to chapter 24 of Second Chronicles and verse 1. Joash was seven years old when he became king. And he reigned in Jerusalem for 40 years. His mother's name was Zibiah, and she was from Beersheba. Now, Joash did what was right in the eyes of the Lord all the years of his mentor, Joeda, the priest. And so verse 4, sometime later, this would be after he became a king, uh, during this time where Joeda was alive, Sometime later, Joash decided to restore the temple of the Lord. Now, the sons of that wicked, wicked woman, this is verse 7, the sons of that wicked woman, Athaliah, she's the evil grandmother we encountered last week, uh, who, killed, who, who killed everybody who could go to the throne, and she, she basically took over the country for six years, and it wasn't pretty. And she, in the process, she had broken into the temple of God, and she had used even its sacred objects 
for the Baals. The Baals represented idol worship. It represented the occult. It represented demonism. It represented the abuse of children. It represented sexual exploitation of women. It, it, it just represented everything reprehensible, the Baals. And, and so they, they looted the temple and left it to decay as they turned to this, these things that just brought disintegration to the culture. So Joash knew this, and uh, he's now a little more than seven years old. He's old enough to start calling some shots. And verse 8, at the king's command, a chest or a box was made and, and placed outside at the gate of the temple of the Lord. So his, his goal is to raise some money for the restoration of the temple, all the deferred maintenance, uh, shore up its structure and get it to where the worship of, of this wonderful God we worship this morning, of the, the true and living creator God, to restore that at the center and therefore see health come back uh, as the worship life of the nation was restored. And so he took about, like, I, I knew a pastor who, who, who I heard describe th their church had had a lot of deferred maintenance, had been a tough time in the life of the church, and and was really updated, outdated. And so he actually took a box and he put it at one side of the sanctuary near the front, like right over there. And he took a box and he called that Joash's box or Joash's chest. He, he called it that. And what I love about this is that there was no manipulation. You didn't have to give. You didn't do anything. But, you know, they, they, they took up their offerings like usual in service. But in addition, there was this box and he called it Joash's chest. He said it was amazing how people just would start walking by that chest and just, they walk by and they just drop in contributions to that. And, and this is what King Joash, he said he does it outside the gates of the temple so people are going to frequent that area. There's this box there where if you want to make a contribution to the rebuilding of the temple, you could do that. To the restoring, essentially, of God's work. And, and so his chest is there. Now, the question is, as any time you undertake a fundraising project, will it work? <laughs> and uh, all I can say is wow to what happens next. If you've ever raised funds for a charitable organization, if you've ever tried to do a fundraiser with your kid for a school project, if you ever run for U.S. Congress, <laughs> Vicki, you know this, um, you know that fundraising, I mean, phew, miserable stuff usually. But Josh puts this box out, and it's like, whoa. And in fact, I'd substitute the whoa with three other words. First of all, joy. I mean, people didn't resent this. And they weren't forced to do it, but people would joy responded. It says in, in verse 10... So all the officials and all the people brought their contributions resentfully. No, no. What's that word? Gladly. They brought their contributions gladly, dropping them into the chest, into the box, until it was full. So they were glad. Now, technically, it amazes me, this was a tax. This was a tax in the law of Moses. They neglected it, of course, because they turned away from God, but... but 
this was something that falls under the category of tax so that the temple could be maintained. And uh, when you gladly pay your taxes, this is a miracle. <laughs> and, then, and then the next word would be, you know, wow, turn, because of generosity, generosity here. Whenever, verse 11, whenever the chest was brought in by the Levites to the king's officials, and they saw that there was a large amount of money, not just eh, a few people gave a little bit, must not be, people must not be in the mood for giving here. Not only did, was there joy in this opportunity, but they gave a large amount of money. And the royal secretary and the officer and the chief priest would come and empty the chest and, and carry it back to his place. So it would fill up and they'd have to empty it uh, and then put it back so that there was room for more to come. And uh, they did this regularly. So repeatedly, this chest would literally fill up. And they have to empty it, then put it back, and it fill up again. They did this regularly and collected a great amount of money, the biblical writer tells us. And, and so there was joy, there was generosity, and as a result of this joyful giving was great gain for this nation, great gain for the people of God, and, and, and especially and first of all, great gain for the work of God. Because verse 12, the next verse, and the king and Jehoiada gave it to those who carried out the work. So they would empty the chest, take out the money, put the chest back while more money would come in. And what did they do with that money? They gave it to those who carried out the work required for the temple of the Lord. And they hired masons and carpenters to restore the Lord's temple. And also workers in iron and bronze to repair the temple. They had to kind of shore up the structural integrity of the building. And these men in charge of the work were diligent and the prayer repairs progressed under them and they rebuilt the temple of God. This would result in incredible gain. It would result in incredible gain for the temple, gain for, for the spiritual turnaround. Uh, they, they literally gave gainfully because they rebuilt the temple of God according to its original design and reinforced it. In verse 14, when they had finished, they brought the rest of the money to the king and Jehoiada. And, and there was so much that was just given. This is part of the wow of it all. There's so much that was given that there was enough left over after they repaired the structure of the temple and fixed it up and addressed all the deferred maintenance issues. There was enough left over now to, we would say, now to furnish. I not only built my house, I furnished my house. To furnish it with everything that was needed to carry on the worship of God. So they brought the rest of the money to the king and Jehoiada the priest and with it were made articles of the Lord's temple, like articles for the service and for the burnt offerings and also the dishes and other objects of gold and silver. And as long as Jehoiada lived, burnt offerings were presented continually in the temple of the Lord. So, so worship was restored. The work of God was reinvigorated by the resources that the people in Jerusalem and Judah gave and and this was truly a gainful moment. We sometimes say we're gainfully employed. That means, that means hopefully my company benefits and I benefit. It's, it's like we're gainfully employed. That, that word gainfully in the English language was first 
adopted in the 1500s. And I like that word. And they gave, not just joyfully and generously, but they gave gainfully. And, and when communities of faith give with joy in generous ways, there is gain at every level because the work of God is put center. And all that happens with spiritual restoration and renewal that can follow takes place. They gave joyfully and they gave generously and they gave gainfully. It's awesome. So that's the illustration of, of their open hands. I mean, they had to keep emptying that chest. I mean, people had open hands. They weren't clutching. They were giving joyfully, generously, and gainfully. And the question is, so how, how do we get there? How to get, if, if, if open hands is our call, if that's in line with the way God has been towards us, um, then, then how, do we, how do we get these fingers pried loose from our clutching fists, just holding desperately on to what I want to keep for me? How do, how do we become like this? And, and I'm grateful, I'm, I'm, I'm so grateful that we're able to offer um, offer the Financial Peace University and other things free of charge to you because if you work this next year to get out of debt and, and to manage your life financially, it's going to be a, a wonderful thing. It's just good to be financially free and, and to be out of debt if, if you can and, 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 and to have options. As, as one, one family said to me, uh, when we weren't financially free, money was telling us what to do and when to do it. But now that we're financially free, we're telling money what to do and when to do it. And that's, that, that's bringing money to become not our masters but our slaves as we follow the one master, Jesus. So this is a powerful thing. And, um, and it just teaches us to be careful with our money. We, we want to be careful because everything we own, like, like in my back pocket, I got my wallet. It represents actually most of my life. Yeah, there's a few dollars in there. represents money. But I also have my driver's license in there. It represents my certain privileges I have that, that I want to use for God's glory of mobility and other things. I have pictures of my family in there, the most, you know, some of the most valuable things in my life. I have my Assemblies of God ordained minister's card in my wallet, which represents my calling and my vocation. And it's like, it's like everything that's symbolically represented in my wallet kind of wraps up my whole life. When I come to Jesus, I give my wallet to him. He says, I want, I, want, I want it all. Remember we sang, you're worthy of a few things? No. You're worthy of it all. He's worthy of it all. He's our creator. He's our Lord. He forgave us. Uh, and then I'm scratching my head saying, oh no, what do I do? I have nothing now. And he gives my wallet back to me. And he says, I'll give it to you to manage. But don't ever manage it again like it belonged to you. Now manage it like it belonged to me. That's why I think as we're believers, we don't want to be wasteful. We want to care about the environment. That's why, we, you know, we don't want to be sloppy in our budgeting because we're managing it for him. Now, I did hear one guy. He was pretty wealthy, and he drove his Rolls Royce before he went to Europe on a trip. He drove his Rolls Royce into downtown New York City, parked it right in front of a bank, and he goes into this bank, and he finds the loan officer and said, I'd like to borrow $5,000. So the guy says, okay, but we'll need some collateral. So, so the man hands him the keys to his Rolls Royce and said, you can, you can have my car for collateral. He said, that'll work. 
So he gets his $5,000, and, uh, and the loan officer immediately, of course, drives the car into the, into the garage parking lot underneath the bank for safekeeping, and the man goes off with his $5,000 to Europe. He comes back two weeks later, comes back to the bank, says, I'm willing, I'm ready to pay off my loan. And the loan officer says, okay, that'll be $5,000 plus $15.40 in interest. And the uh, guy says, no problem. Writes out a check for $5,015.40 and gets his keys back. And he's walking out, and, and the loan officer, he just can't hold it back. He said, sir, by the way, I just have a question for you. I mean, over the last couple of weeks, I found out you're pretty wealthy. And, and I just can't help but asking, why on earth would you want to buy, borrow $5,000 from us? And the guy says, where else in New York can your car be kept safely for two weeks for $15.40? Lord, make us all wise. Maybe not wise guys, but (laughs) wise. Anyway, it's just good to steward what God's given us. But that's not the whole story. I mean, you can still manage your money carefully and get out of debt so that you can keep it all for yourself and have more in the end. So that's only the beginning part. I think the real steps to prying our fingers open uh, start, first of all, with our hearts, right? Where else? In an article recently, Christianity Today, um, an article called Giving from the Heart, they say after serving more than surveying more than 16,500 donors to 17 Christian ministries, the Evangelical Council for Financial Accountability discovered that most give based on internal values, not on who asks them or how they're asked. In the end, they don't give because they're guilted to, manipulated to, forced to, pressured to. I mean, may God never... We, we try to stay a long way away from that as a church. You will never feel pressure here to give. Because, uh, because, you know, this is not about a church budget. This is about your heart. We will talk about money because this is about your heart. Thank God our budget's doing fine right now. But I'm concerned about your heart. Jesus wants your heart. And that's where this all starts. And it starts with Jesus-centered affections. People give... Because that's where their values and their affections are. Not who asks them or how, or how they're asked. People ultimately give because that's what they value. They're given towards what their value, where, where their heart is. And, and that's why prying our fingers open starts with Jesus-centered affections. I read this verse over our July 4th weekend prayer service. That is, it's such a powerful verse. One more time. In fact, three verses. The first three verses of Colossians 3. Since then, you've been raised with Christ. Set your heart on things above. That's now we've negotiated a lot of things in the world beside us that we're in this past week. And, and I do hope you love your job. And I do hope you love your hobbies. And I really hope you love your family and your spouse and your friends. But, but he said there is a dimension in which that's not ultimately belonging to not the kingdom of this world, but the kingdom that's to come that reshapes our whole in Christ identity. We set our hearts on things above. He said, set your heart. That's that's your allegiance, that's your affections, 
that's your attention. Set your heart on things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of the Father. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. For you died, and your life is now ridden with Christ in God. This means that my heart becomes captured by the beauty of Jesus. My heart becomes captured by the glory of the kingdom of God. When I stand here and sing, Lord, you're worthy of it all. Day and night, night and day, let incense arise. It's because, Lord, I'm captured by who you are in a way that nothing else in this world captures me. I'm captured by your love. I'm captured by the beauty of your mission in the world. I'm captured by the sheer thought that you would give me your spirit so I could partner with you in that mission. I mean, you, your, your whole priority set reorders when you are constantly paying attention to things above, to Jesus. You're living this Jesus-attentive life that completely reshapes your affections. And I dare say, it's our affections that are our biggest our, our, our biggest battle. It's our affections right here. I'm going to be really honest, and I say this a lot, but I'm going to be honest one more time with you. When it comes to your affections, I don't necessarily believe what you tell me, and I've never had permission to do this, but if I had permission to take out your phone and spend 10 minutes looking over your calendar app and your banking app, I could tell where your affections really are. Because this is a bunch of hot air unless our affections translate into how we live. The idea in the kingdom of God is that affections for Jesus, paying attention to things above. So reshape our affections that that's where everything we value lies. And that starts the way. Remember Jesus said, well, your treasures, your heart will be there too. You know what? You can't separate treasure and heart. And, and where your heart is, your heart will always be around things you treasure and value. And that's why our affections need to be reshaped by Jesus. And then, and then we go to what I call the 10% principle. You hear us talk about this as well. I think Pastor Carter mentioned this is our tithes and our offerings. This is the 10% principle. And you're going, okay, I knew you'd get there. Ugh. And I realize that, you know, we, we've got a church full of tithers, but there's, there's a lot of people who don't tithe as well. And I don't personally, by the way, I know many pastors disagree with this, I do not personally look at anybody's giving records. I, I could just look you in the face here, and I have no clue whether you tithe or not. Because I don't want anything of how I lead as a pastor to be biased to individuals on the basis of money. Although I think money is is important issue because it's a hard issue. But So, first of all, I don't know whether you tithe or not. But I believe, I believe it's a principle. People say, well, no, I don't think it's a New Testament law. I don't think now that we know Jesus, we don't need to tithe. No. You, this is a principle you find all through Scripture. Like, for instance, way back in the first book of the Bible, in Genesis, it says in verse 20, uh, where Abram, before his name is changed to Abraham, Abram meets this guy by the name of Melchizedek, he kind of comes out of nowhere. He's a priest, and he's a king, and he's the king of an, a place called Salem, which means peace. So he's kind of a prince of peace. 
he is described in the New Testament as a picture of Jesus because Jesus is our priest, he's our savior, and he's our king, he's our Lord, and he's the prince of peace. And so he comes, Abram's just experienced a military miracle, he's gotten his family back that, that were kidnapped by some raiding, uh, by a raiding gang, and he gets them back, and Melchizedek, out of the nowhere, he comes and meets him, and he says, and praise be to the God most high who delivered your enemies into your hand. Amen. He is worthy of it all. Then Abraham opened his hands. Then Abraham gave him, but gave him how much? Gave him a tenth. Where did Abraham, you don't find this commanded anywhere? But I like how my friend, Pastor Rob Ketterling, puts it. Hearts touched by God respond with a tenth. You see this all through Scripture. Abraham's grandson, Jacob, will do the same at a new season in his life. He said, God, if you prosper me, I'll give you a tenth back. This then is codified in the law of Moses, and, and the significance comes to us. It's the first fruit. It's the first one in ten that belongs to the Lord to remind us that God does own it all, that, he, that, that he's got my whole wallet, I'm just managing it, and that, and that everything, everything we have, to, we have is from him and for him. And so we, the tenth, just, just gives this substance. Here's how I looked at it when um, I was poor as a church mouse and trying to survive as a student. I call this the verse that got me through college. Verse 33 of Matthew 6. This is Jesus himself. Seek the kingdom of God above all else. Uh, say those three words with me. Above all else. Above all else, seek God's kingdom's priorities. And live righteously and he will give you everything you need. Well, those three words above all else became really important to me when I was a college student because I was a full-time student for nine years. I got three degrees in engineering and I technically didn't have much extra time and I definitely didn't have any extra money. <laughs> I knew times where I didn't know if I'd be able to buy toothpaste that week. And yet I said, God, I know I don't have enough money and I know I don't have enough time. But above all else, needs to mean something to my checkbook and my calendar book. Otherwise, I'm just living on nice thoughts and good intentions. And so where the rubber had to start hitting the road for me was for me to put tangibility to those three words above all else. I lost track of how many times I quoted this verse to myself when I was a college student, especially the last part. And he will give you everything you need. <laughs> oh, Jesus, yes. I need it. I mean, sometimes I didn't have enough time. I didn't have enough time to lead a Bible study. Now, a lot of you, I don't have enough time. And thank you to the 35 of you who attended our new, that's fantastic, new leader, group leader, inf information meeting this morning. I mean, it's easy to say, I don't have time for this. But none of us do, technically. But, but there's above all else dimension in which God says, I'm, I'm going to do this. I, 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 need, I need some evidence that, I re, that my priorities are really above all else in your life. And so I want you, some people literally tithe their time. I don't count up my time quite in that way. I'm sure I do. But as a student, I did, although, although I, I didn't actually calculate the hours. But I led a little Bible study. 
during second year graduate school, God did something totally supernatural I can't explain. And in the little group that I was failing as a leader to lead, he took over. We grew overnight. Soon we had 100 students. I spent the last three and a half years finishing my PhD full-time, but, but being the student leader, the leader of, of 100, 100 students hungry for God. And I technically didn't have time for that, but I did find that the Lord kept the last part of that verse. And uh, there were times where I often had no, I never had control over deadlines on assignments and papers and exams, but I would find God would sovereignly begin to rearrange my schedule. That currency of time, He knows. He knows how to help me with that and multiply it back. And, and I don't know how it happened, but, but I got through leading a ministry, and that's why I'm doing what I'm doing now, but I also was able to finish my degrees. And the same with money. I mean, I had times... And it just really hurt to write my tithe check out. And when you're tithing on just a little bit. My first job as a high school student was for my dad. He paid me a, do- a dollar an hour. He was not generous. <laughs> He's with Jesus in heaven and he loved the Lord. But he was not generous to his son. And so even 10 cents out of that dollar makes me feel like I've got nothing left. Jesus, I need this for me. I mean, I can't spare 10 cents. I'm only getting a dollar total. But when I was a high school student, I just began to learn to do this. And uh, I'll tell you, God just helped me. I don't share it publicly very much, but I, um, after nine years of college, I graduated debt-free. I'm still not sure how that happened. But God just, took, and I'm not promising that will happen to you, but God's got his own story God's got his own Matthew 6.33 story he wants to write in your life. And it starts with your time and your money that tangibly demonstrate whether he is above all else in your life or not. And I dare you, I dare you to put him first and then let him put heaven behind you and see what happens. It's the 10% principle, it's the ties. And what Pastor Carter was talking about this morning, the over and above giving, the over and above stuff, which for us, of course, is, and thank God for your generosity to our finish line fund. Pretty soon, it's only going to be tithing to the church and giving to our footprint fund, which is we want to leave a generational and a global footprint as a church. So when Sandy and I got married, we, 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 we not only committed to tithing to the church we were a part of, but to giving over and above, mainly to missions at that time. And uh, right now we're also trying to get out of debt, so we have Footprint Fund and Finish Line Fund. But in a few months we'll be done with Finish Line Fund. Praise God. Thank you for your generosity to that. And thank you for helping us keep 200 missionaries on the ground around the world. And I'd love to double that. Who knows what we could do as we get completely out of debt and just put our money towards where our heart is and where Jesus' priorities are. This is it. This is over and above giving. And, uh, and, and even though as a student that was tough for me some days, uh, not just tithing but doing over and above, you know, uh, there's just, there can still be joy. Remember, they dropped money in Joe Ash's box and they did it joyfully and generously and gainfully. And, um, you know, I experienced that even though I didn't have much to give, especially in the over and above part. And, and in 2 Corinthians 8 verse 2, 
Paul talks about churches in northern Greece, and he said, in the midst of a very severe trial, trial, their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty, it welled up in rich generosity. Now, it's costing me $70 to fill my tank now rather than $35. And I don't have much joy when I'm getting my tank filled up. Congresswoman, can you do something about that, please? Thank you. Oh, sorry. We're very honored you're here. And we do pray for you, and we pray for our president, and we pray for everybody who's serving our country. But, uh, you know, it's getting tough. If you bought chicken this week, it's what you paid for steaks three months ago. And it's not easy. But I'll tell you, when your affections are set on Jesus, and you're filled with his spirit, and you're willing to take the risk of letting him be above all else. There can be a joy. And I don't get this equation. Joy plus poverty equals, I would think, not much in the offering. I don't think joy overcomes poverty usually. But he said their joy and their poverty welled up in rich generosity. And then some of us are actually spiritual gifts. Some of us, we're told in Romans 12, actually have a gift of giving in a way other people don't. We all ought to tithe and give over and above, but some of you, some of you, you may not be rich, but the joy is just overwhelming in your life. You just seem to find it unusually easy by the strength of the Holy Spirit to open your hands. And you live on less. You don't have the boats that some of your friends have. You don't take the nice vacations some of your friends do. But you are just so open and you just have like a supernatural gift of giving and Paul says in Romans 12:8, if that's your gift then go for it then give generously just go for it I mean the gain that could come to the kingdom of God if you do that is so overwhelming just go for it so King Joash in other words would paraphrase Romans 12:8 by saying when I put my chest out they gave joyfully and they gave generously and they gave gainfully and our nation changed. Our church changed. The mission of Jesus in the world was advanced. And boy, did our Lord know how to take care of his people when they started doing this. Amen? Amen. Stand with me, please. I'm going to have you read a verse out loud with me. This is going to be our altar call this morning. And I'd like our prayer partners to come and our worship team to come if they would. And isn't this just like God? He doesn't ask us to open our hands before He first opened His hands. <laughs> and so, I'd like you to read out loud this verse. It's from Second Chronicles. I mean, Second Corinthians, not Chronicles. We've been reading Chronicles. Second Corinthians chapter 8. And I'd like you just to read this verse out loud with me, all together. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, through his poverty, might become rich. I have looked at religions of the world. I have looked at philosophies. I have looked at all kinds of things. I even tried real hard to be an engineer, and I've not find, found anything as stunning as that. That he became poor. That through his 
poverty, richness would flow to me. This is the open-handed God before he asked us to open our hands. And of course, his poverty was, was his dying on the cross for us, losing everything, losing reputation, losing people's admiration, losing his life, losing comfort. And he took your sin and mine on himself. So why? So that through his poverty, we might become rich. That's our altar call.